0: You're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Today on Something You Should Know, where did Mother's Day come from and why were there so many lawsuits about it? Then they say laughter is the best medicine. Why? What happens when you laugh? Our brains are changing when we laugh.
1: We release a cocktail of hormones. And so in essence, as far as our brains are concerned, laughing is like exercising, meditating, and having sex at the same
0: time. Then why is it your stomach growls at exactly the wrong time so everyone hears it? And you and your partner are going to fight. So if
2: you're going to fight, how do you have a good fight? So a good fight, you can still go to bed angry. The the never-go-to-bed-angry saying, we don't believe in that. You need to be in a good mental place when you're having this discussion with someone. It's okay to say, I'm really having a rough time. Can we pick this up later? All this today on
0: Something You Should Know. If you have to hire someone, what's the best way? Referrals? Well, maybe that could work. But just because somebody knows somebody who knows you Something You Should Know, fascinating
2: intel, the world's top experts, and practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know, with Mike Carruthers.
0: Hi, welcome to Something You Should Know. It won't be long before we're celebrating Mother's Day. This episode is being published in March, and in May, it will be Mother's Day. Do you know the origins of Mother's Day? They're a little fuzzy because the ancient Greeks and Romans dedicated festivals to mother goddesses, so you could kind of call that the beginning of Mother's Day. But according to Reader's Digest, today's version of Mother's Day in the United States can be attributed to one woman, Anna Jarvis, who actually wasn't a mother herself. She organized the first observance of Mother's Day in 1908 to honor her own mother, who had died three years earlier. It wasn't necessarily to celebrate all mothers. It was supposed to be to celebrate the best mother you have ever known. In other words, your mother. In 1914, President Woodrow Wilson named Mother's Day an official holiday. But what's interesting is this holiday that's celebrated with hugs and flowers, actually became one of anger, obsession, and litigation for Anna Jarvis, the founder of Mother's Day. She felt that the holiday was being hijacked by greeting card companies and candy and flower companies, and they were all just corrupting her vision of what Mother's Day was supposed to be all about. So she ended up organizing boycotts and protests, and she spoke out against people including Eleanor Roosevelt, for using the day to raise money for charity. And she was involved in 33 lawsuits by 1944. So as you celebrate Mother's Day and enjoy the holiday this May, realize that uh, (laughs) there was a lot of fighting and bickering about it before it got to be this wonderful, peaceful holiday that we now all celebrate. And that is something you should know. Who doesn't enjoy a good laugh? We like things that are funny and humorous. There's something very special that happens when people laugh together and enjoy humor together. Still, there does seem to be something kind of frivolous about humor. It's not really part of life so much as it's something to do to take a break from the serious part of life. And that may be exactly the wrong way to look at it. According to Naomi Bagdonas, Naomi is a lecturer at Stanford University School of Business, a media consultant and coach, and author of the book, Humor Seriously, Why Humor is a Secret Weapon in Business and Life. Hi, Naomi. Welcome.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: So explain why humor, comedy, laughter, being funny, why that's important to life rather than just being a break from everything.
1: Humor is far more important than we think for productivity, for connection, creativity, influence, and even our emotional and physical well-being. And yet we don't think of it this way. And so we know from the research that around age 23, people fall off a humor cliff. In essence, we stop laughing. We stop believing ourselves to be funny. And so as a result, it's a completely underleveraged asset in our lives and especially in our workplaces. Our workplaces are far too humorless. This is actually a learnable skill and people need to start making these small shifts in behavior and mindset to start changing, not just the way we work, but also the way that we live.
0: I want to hear more about the humor cliff because I've never heard of the humor cliff before. I didn't fall off of it. I. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, then uh, you are an anomaly in a data set of over 1.4 million people across 166 countries. And as part of this research, individuals were asked a really simple question. Did you smile or laugh a lot yesterday? And what we find from the data is at age 16, 18, 20, the answer is pretty consistently yes. Then at age 23, all of a sudden, we start to see a lot more no's. In fact, if you look at the data, people fall off a cliff. And that that cliff doesn't start climbing back up again until around age 75. And so we have all these misperceptions about humor, especially at work, and we just stop laughing.
0: And why do you suppose that is?
1: It's a great question. We actually dug into that exact question as well. So we surveyed over a thousand people, asking them what holds you back from using humor at work. Because, of course, age 23 is when we enter the workforce. And what we uncovered are these four myths that people have about humor. And we try our best to debunk these myths. So the first is the serious business myth the idea that if you take your work seriously, you have to be serious all the time. And in fact, we find that this is actually counterproductive, especially for leaders. We know that leaders with a sense of humor are seen by their employees as 27% more motivating, that their employees are 15% more engaged in their jobs, their teams are more likely to solve creativity challenges, and humor more broadly can reduce stress and help us accomplish really serious things. Next, we've got the failure myth. That's the idea that if you fail, it's going to be hugely detrimental to your career. And in fact, uh, researchers Brad Bitterly, Maurice Schweitzer, and Allison Wood Brooks at Harvard and Wharton have done some research on this and have found that as long as your humor is still appropriate, then there isn't as much risk as we think. And in fact, if we fail, that is if we don't get laughter, but the joke is still appropriate, then it'll still boost other people's perceptions of our confidence in the process. Third, the born with it myth. This is the idea that humor is an innate ability, not a learned skill. But I can tell you from over five years of teaching this at Stanford's Graduate School of Business that humor can be learned. It's a skill we can develop. And in particular, it's a mindset that we can shift uh, to make it easier to find joy in our lives. And then lastly is the being funny myth. And this is the idea that in order to benefit from humor at work, you have to actually be funny. You have to be telling jokes. And this is completely backwards. In fact, one of the worst things you can do is try to be funny at work. Instead, this is just about having a sense of humor. So we talk about uh, navigating your life on the precipice of a smile, being more generous with your laughter, and looking for reasons for joy.
0: I have worked for people who <laughs> have absolutely no sense of humor, and I find that often in conversation when you try to inject humor that it, you get those blank stares and it goes nowhere. So I imagine that how much humor you can have in a workplace is set by the boss. If you have a fairly humorless boss, you're more likely to have a fairly humorless workplace.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So setting the tone from the top is incredibly important. What we tell the leaders we work with is if you're not comfortable using humor yourself, that's completely fine. The most important thing you can do as a leader is be a bit more generous with your laughter and simply signal that you have a sense of humor. So... I would love to talk for a minute here about why physiologically this is really important because a lot of people think, okay, well, this is just our psychology and this is, you know, sort of a fun and frivolous thing, but really our brains are changing when we laugh. So we release a cocktail of hormones. We release, for example, endorphins, which give us something like a runner's high. We lower our cortisol, so we feel calmer, less stressed. Think you know, 10 minutes of meditation. We release oxytocin, which is often called the love hormone uh, or trust hormone. This is also released during certain types of physical touch. And so in essence, as far as our brains are concerned, laughing is like exercising, meditating and having sex at the same time and way more efficient in my point of view. So what's important here is that these changes in our physiology change not just how we feel and how we behave, but it also changes how other people perceive us. So they perceive us as higher in status, uh, more persuasive. And so laughter is not just something fun, frivolous. It fundamentally changes how we as humans feel and how other people perceive us.
0: I think, and this goes back to those myths or or those beliefs that people have that cause them to fall off the cliff, but there is a perception, and I have felt it because I tend to go for the joke. I tend to try to find the humor in the situation, but then I sometimes, especially in a meeting or in a work situation, think, yeah, if you do that, people aren't going to take you seriously. You're the jokester, and you better be very careful with this.
1: What we find is that in general, people are so far indexed in the other direction that if you're weaving humor in, in general, it's gonna benefit you and the culture that you're that you're in. We also know that humor makes us more persuasive. So studies have shown that even including a lighthearted line at the end of a sales pitch, like my final offer is X and I'll throw in my pet frog, will increase customers' willingness to pay by 18%. Now, this is an objectively lame joke, but what's happening here is the person on the other side of the negotiations table, their cortisol is going down, they feel more comfortable. You are now more persuasive in their eyes. And by the way, they walk away from that negotiation feeling better about the sales price than those who paid 18% lower, but didn't have the
0: joke. That's really interesting. Because, again, it, it flies in the face of this idea that, you know, okay, fun is fun, but here we, we, we're doing serious work here, and, and there's just no room for that, and, and or there's certainly not room for much of it, and so that brings up the question, so how much is enough? I mean, you, we can't just yuck it up all day, we still have to do the work, so where, where's the line if there is a line?
1: Again in general our workplaces are far too humorless. And again this is not about cracking jokes, it's about showing up as more human in our workplaces.
0: And so what does that mean to be more human? I mean if you're a relatively serious person, you don't you're not comfortable yucking it up, you're not comfortable sh- laughing a lot. You're just a serious person and y- y- you don't want to I mean how do you become more humorful if you are if you're humorless?
1: It's a great question. And I would challenge that because we behave differently at work than we do at home. And so one exercise that we do with our students is we have them do a an email audit. So they have to go back, they have to go into their sent folder of their emails and look at their last 10 emails. And we have a competition called a jargon off. And our students have to find the most egregious business speak that they've used, right? Attached, please find. Uh, regretfully, I will be unable to attend the meeting. Whatever that is that is, um, could have been written by a robot. And you, I mean, it is impressive what our students come up with from their sent folders. And this is incredibly pervasive. So we know that the more technology mediated our communication becomes, the easier it is to lose our sense of humor, and our humanity along the way, right? We are communicating through robots. And so we start to behave like robots. And so being more human, and I would, I would bet that if you check your scent folder, if anyone listening checks their scent folder, there are ways in which we are behaving and interacting at work that are just not how we would behave and interact on the weekends with people who are our friends and loved ones. It's about bringing more of that weekend self to work with you.
0: Because the benefit of doing that is what? Other than what you've already talked about, about how it's good for you physiologically to laugh and have humor in your life. And it's, you know, maybe good for relationships, but how does it help the business?
1: A recent HBR survey found that 58% of individuals would rather trust a stranger than their boss, right? So trust is an incredible issue in our world right now. And showing more humanity... Showing that we have a sense of humor, that we are, uh, you know, someone that our employees would feel comfortable hanging out with on the weekends, makes a really big difference in having people feel more comfortable around you, feeling like you're more approachable. And so, one example of this is Dick Costolo, former CEO of Twitter. He at one point walked into the elevator at Twitter one morning, and you know he's CEO, Twitter's growing um, incredibly fast, and he's standing at the back of the elevator, and he hears someone whisper oh my gosh, I think that's the CEO. And, you know, he overhears this and he says, hello, yes, I'm Dick Costolo, I'm the CEO, I'm real, Uh, I'm a real human being, flesh and bone, nice to meet you. And, you know, he reaches out and shakes their hand and the whole elevator erupts in laughter. And Dick realized there was this incredible status barrier that had built up where people, and this wasn't just whispers in the elevator, right? This was people aren't feeling comfortable bringing him hard news People aren't feeling comfortable being, uh, you know, open with him about what's going on in the company, and so he started, you know, using these elevator rides every day as ways to talk to other people in the company, as ways to humanize himself. And he knew that those moments in the elevator were then being talked about, you know, in the lunchroom and in, in meetings later in the day. And so, and this is of course just one way that he did it, but he had many techniques that he used to show that he had a sense of humor, to show that he was a regular person. And his goal really was to cut down the status barrier.
0: Naomi Bagdonis is my guest. Her book is called Humor Seriously, Why Humor is a Secret Weapon in Business and Life. So, Naomi, I have known people, I've worked for people, just been in social situations with people that have a sense of humor. It's just not my sense of humor. I don't find them funny, (laughs) and I'm sure they probably don't find me all that funny. But in other words, a sense of humor is great, but not everybody likes the same sense of humor.
1: So, we know from research that there are four broad humor styles that people tend to fall into. Those are the stand-up, the sweetheart, the sniper, and the magnet. So we've got the stand-up. Those are bold, irreverent, you know, not afraid to ruffle feathers to get a laugh. Think Amy Schumer uh, or Eddie Murphy. And next, we've got the sweetheart. Earnest, understated, these people use humor that lightens the mood and lifts people up. So think Bowen Yang from SNL or Jimmy Kimmel. Next, you've got the sniper. And these people are edgy, sarcastic, a little more introverted, but they are masters of the unexpected dig. So this is, you know, think Michelle Wolf or Bill Burr. And lastly, you've got the magnet. So magnets are expressive, charismatic, um, a little bit silly, and really easy to make laugh. So think someone like Jimmy Fallon. So what we know is understanding your own humor style is also going to help you get a window into what your risks are. So, you know, you asked earlier about over-indexing. Well, that's a total magnet risk. Magnets have to be aware of how much they're using humor and how silly they are with their humor, uh, you know, because that's the biggest risk for them. On the other side of the spectrum, you have the sweetheart and the sniper. Snipers are really stingy with their laughter. Like, you've got to work very hard to make a sniper laugh. And so if a sniper is in a leadership role... Some of the coaching that I'll do with them is around, hey, listen, here are the benefits of you just signaling you have a sense of humor. And that's sort of what we'll start to work on, along with, you know, these principles from comedy, like you never want to punch down, you want to use humor that's uplifting, especially if you're in a leadership role. Um, so it, it really does vary by humor style.
0: As, I, as I'm listening to you, I, it, it it dawns on me that that one of the problems and the struggles that people have with this is that... that there's humor. And then there's also discipline. And you think of the military, not the funniest organization in the world. And that, that if you allow too much humor, that discipline will break down. Is that, is that a fair assumption that people, ha- that people operate under?
1: Absolutely. And that's the serious business myth, right? That if you want to accomplish serious things, you have to be serious along the way and disciplined, uh, you know, and all of these other characteristics that, of course, in a traditional model of work, we needed. But we are moving away from, you know, simple problems in our world. And more and more, we need more creativity. We need more, uh, you know we're solving different types of problems that are not as straightforward as perhaps they they used to be. And so that, so there was one study done of over 50 teams and these are real working teams and uh, researchers videotaped one hour team meetings discussing actual things that these teams were working on. Well, they then had an independent group of observers rate whether or not there was laughter in that meeting, whether or not there was humor. So did the team laugh together? They then had the bosses of these teams, the supervisors, rate the team across a whole bunch of characteristics, both in the moment and also six months later. And what they found was that of these 50 teams, the teams that had humor, that had a moment where they all laughed together, had more productive functional communication they performed better as a team as rated by the supervisor, both in the moment and also six months later. And so, I mean, there's a wealth of research that shows when humor exists in a team, they're going to perform better. And this is not just about them having better relationships, although by the way, having a close friend at work is one of the greatest predictors of retention of whether or not you leave your job. It's also because when we laugh, we become more creative. It becomes a more psychologically safe environment. People are comfortable sharing their ideas that maybe they wouldn't otherwise. And we're able to bounce back more quickly from setbacks as well.
0: One of my greatest, most satisfying joys in life is when I get into a conversation with someone and the laughter starts and it builds and it builds. I can do this with, with my sons, a couple of my friends, my brother, my wife, where it just it just becomes uncontrollable laughter. I did it with my son the other day, and we were both laughing so hard, and he was standing up, and he just fell down. He was laughing so hard. And I, those moments are just, to me, the best. They're magical.
1: hmm Absolutely. And no one wants to lead a boring life. No one wants to have a boring conversation, and yet we are risk averse. And so even that moment, right? That moment with your son, you're laughing, you're crying, that those moments are going to be the ones that you remember years from now or decades from now. And by the way, this is not just, uh, you know, woohoo, this is because your brain is releasing dopamine and so you're actually locking those moments into your short and long-term memory. Um, And similarly in business, right? We all remember those teams that we've been a part of where it feels like joy just comes more easily, right? You walk into a room and you know no matter what you have to tackle that day, you're going to be able to get through it and you're going to find some joy in the process. And we reminisce about those teams that we've been a part of. And what we don't realize is that we can be creating those environments in every team we work on, if we are more generous with our laughter, if we're navigating our lives on the precipice of a smile, if we're showing up as more human. And, you know, more broadly than that, my my partner in crime at Stanford, Dr. Jennifer Ocker, she spent her career researching what drives human well-being and what drives happiness versus what we think. And, one of the most profound revelations that we had from this work is actually stems from the exact opposite place that you would think we'd go, which is from death. So research has been done with hospice workers around what people wish for in their final days of life. And from this research, five themes emerged. So these are the five things that people um, regret in their last days of life, And those are boldness, authenticity, presence, joy, and love. So boldness, I wish I'd been less fearful of change. I wish I'd taken bolder risks. Authenticity, I wish that I had lived the way that was true to myself, not what other people thought I should be. Um, Presence, I wish I had lived less in my past and in my future and instead savored the moment. Joy, and this is an important phrasing, I wish I had let myself be happier. I wish I had not taken myself so serious and let myself find joy and then love. I wish I had the chance to say I love you one more time. And what's profound about this work and the reason that we spent the last 6 years of our lives on this topic of humor is humor mitigates each of these five regrets. So we know that when people when we have environments of laughter and levity People are less risk averse. They take bolder chances, and they have this stronger social support systems to back them up. Um, for authenticity, we know that when people are showing up with more humor, they care less about what other people think, and they do more of what they believe. Humor empowers us to do that. Presence, all of humor, and this is you know comedy one hundred and one is about listening really carefully. It's about being in the moment, and waiting for that simple truth that you can make a call back to, or you can, um, you know, react to in a way that, that is unexpected joy. Of course, this one is, is um, perhaps the most obvious, but when we navigate our lives on the precipice of a smile, we find more opportunities for joy. Again, joy comes more easily. And lastly, love, and this is perhaps an unusual connection, but, you know, Michael Lewis, the author, he, in, in our, we had a conversation with him, um, and it's it's the afterword of the book. And the last line is, "Where there is humor, love isn't far behind." And it's our thesis that, they're sharing a laugh with someone is a little display of love, right? You laughing with your son, you crying, and you know him falling on the floor, laughing. It's a display of your care and your love for each other.
0: Well, I think everybody knows just inherently that humor and laughter it not only just feels good in the moment, but, y- you know, the, the the feelings linger That the, the, that it must be in some way good for you.
1: Oh, there's one more thing I'll share on that point, which is <clears throat> one of our favorite studies was conducted... Uh, in Norway. And this is a study that links humor to longevity, which is pretty profound. So it was a 15 year longitudinal study in Norway where they asked people, you know, do you feel like you have a sense of humor? And what they found was that individuals who say that they have a sense of humor, this is not, I'm funny, just I have a sense of humor, that these people were 30% more resistant to severe disease and they lived on average eight years longer. And I mean, this is a whole body of research around what happens to us physiologically when we laugh, that we increase blood flow. Um, you know, physically, there there are some health benefits to laughter. Um, but, you know, that's another factor here, too.
0: Well, really, the last 20 minutes or so has really been nothing but reason after reason after reason to lighten up and, and have fun and and laugh it up a little bit. My guest has been Naomi Bagdonas. She is a lecturer at Stanford University School of Business, a media consultant and coach. And the book is called Humor: Seriously: Why Humor is a Secret Weapon in Business and in Life. And you'll find a link to that book in the show notes. Thanks, Naomi. This was fun,
1: thanks, Mike. It was really nice talking to you. and thanks for what you do. Um, we're big fans of the podcast, and it's amazing how consistently you were able to have really interesting conversations and teach things that people should know.
2: This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the
1: Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mm. What flavor are you holding? Now, open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you.
0: As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know is all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever met anybody who's in a marriage or relationship say, you know, when we fight, I do that really well. I'm really good at it. I've never heard anybody say that Uh, until today, it's kind of interesting to think that every couple fights. People in any relationship argue and disagree. And when we fight, we mostly just kind of stumble through it. Well, why not actually get better at it if it's possible? And it is according to Penn Holderness. He and his wife have come as close as you can get, I suppose, to getting really good at fighting with each other. And they've written a book called Everybody Fights... So why not get better at
2: it? Hey, Penn. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me.
0: So let's start with why you became a master at fighting. I mean, what brought, what brought you and your wife to decide, hey, we need to get really good at this?
2: Sure. Well, my wife, Kim, and I have been married for 17 years now, and I feel like you can multiply those years by seven and make it like over 100 in dog years because we work together and we live together. Uh, And we run a company together. And so all of that put together has led to a bit of a powder keg when it comes to our relationship. After sort of the early honeymoon phases of our marriage, we started getting in a lot of fights and we couldn't figure out why we kept having the same fights over and over again. So we did what a lot of people do and what I recommend a lot of people do. We went to counseling and figured out what was going wrong. And we're so inspired by the help that we got and really how simple it was that we wanted to kind of share it.
0: Well, my sense is that a, a big part of the problem is that even when people you know, read books and listen to you and go to seminars, and you get all this information about uh, how to disagree and how to fight better. But in the moment when the fight actually is going on, it's very hard to, to put the anger and the emotion aside and be very logical and talk about our feelings when, when you're so upset.
2: I think you're exactly right. One interesting thing is there's a part of your brain and it's the part that controls your speech. And when you're stressed out or you're getting in a fight, it sort of surrenders to the other parts of your body and it it stops working as well. And so when you hear someone say, I'm so mad at you, I can't even talk to you, that's a physiological reaction.
0: Yeah, well, there's the problem right there. How do you discuss this well when you can barely discuss it at all?
2: One hundred percent. One of the things that we talk about is de-escalating. It's you have to take some time just to chill out. It could be taking a few deep breaths. It could be kind of petting your dog. Uh, we used to be, by the way, horrible at this. We would just plow through the fight and it would devolve into fighting about all sorts of things that we didn't even start talking about. In the first place, you've got to chill out and let that nervous system kind of calm down before you get any farther with the fight. So that's step number one. And then once you get into the fight itself, it's about the way that you say things, not necessarily what it is that you're saying. Because 90% of all communication, and I'm not the one who invented this, it's been said a lot of times, 90% of all communication is actually nonverbal. It's in the way that you say it. It's in your tone. Sometimes it's in how loud you are, how close you are to someone and what you're doing with your body and your hands.
0: And so how do you do that? Well,
2: let's say you and I are getting in a fight because Michael, you don't like the way that I chew, right? If you say you're really ticking me off with the way that you're chewing your food right now. It's not as effective because you're kind of accusing somebody of doing something. It's not as effective as if you were to say, hey, Penn, I feel a little stressed out. And the sounds that I'm hearing, they're making me feel uncomfortable. So you're going from you're acting or you should into I feel. And when you talk about your personal feelings, they're your own and you can't really argue with them and people have to respect them.
0: If somebody's chewing is bothering you, chances are, I bet that it's been bothering you for a long time. You never say anything, you never say anything, you never say anything. And then when you finally say something, you get mad about
2: it. Here's something really interesting for us. When you get to be with someone for a period of longer than just a few weeks, when you start living together and you start developing habits together, you have these things that you do in your life that are unspoken jobs of yours and our counselor called them secret contracts they're just these little things some of them are good like it's good kim wakes the kids up in the morning and then i drive them to school i don't want to wake up as early as her kim doesn't want to leave the house so we never really talked about it. that was just kind of how it worked out like she would wake them up i would take them to school at night she would make dinner i would do the dishes I would put the dog to bed. She would go to bed a little bit earlier. And we've never said any of these things. They've just always happened. They're these secret contracts that we have in our marriage. A lot of fights happen when you have secret contracts that you don't agree with and you haven't gotten around to addressing. So we have one really big chapter about that when Kim um, went on strike because no one else in their family would change the toilet paper roll. And that includes me. Like Our kids wouldn't change it. I wouldn't change it. She took to Instagram and had this sort of guerrilla warfare thing where she told all of her uh, followers that her family was ticking her off, knowing that I don't ever check Instagram. Until I found out about a week later that she'd been toasting me on social media about the fact that I never changed the cho- toilet paper. We took that to our counselor, expecting me to be 100% wrong. And the Christopher was like, Kim, did you ever ask him to do it? And she said, no, because I always have to do it. He goes, you need to ask him to do it because mature people ask for what they want. And she had never once asked anyone to do it. She just got upset because she assumed that was her job. And that happens all the time. Like I, my secret contract is I'm supposed to be like the the mood keeper upper. I'm supposed to be the golden retriever and the happy guy in our family. And sometimes I cannot do that. So we actually had a pretty valuable conversation about household duties. And we had a conversation about me always having to be the cheerleader. And we kind of amended those secret contracts but they can lead to a lot of fights.
0: So what's a good fight? What's the anatomy of a fight well fought, do you think?
2: So a good fight goes when you start with your feelings and you say, this is what's going on in my life and I feel like there there needs to be a change. The most important thing for the next person to say, and there's two things you can really do that are really useful. One is to just say, I hear you. And the other thing, and this is a crazy tool—I had no idea how well it works. You just kind of summarize and repeat what she just said, uh, and what that does is it gets you guys pointed in the same direction, right? So you're both, you're, you're. She's saying something, and you're hearing what she says. Then you follow with how you feel, right? Now, this is always gonna, this is not always gonna work perfectly. You're gonna move into you always or you should, or you might even like change the subject and move into, let's say, we're talking about not changing the toilet paper, and I'm really upset that I always have to do the dishes and we've like left the original argument. Another tip that our counselor gave us is once that starts, we have a saying that we actually say out loud during the fight that is stay in the airport. It's a weird metaphor, right? But the airport is gross. You don't want to be there. You want to get on a flight and go somewhere else. And so in arguments, you frequently just like jet somewhere else in the middle of a flight. You've got to stay on the argument at hand before you move on to the next one, like one, one fight at a time. Um, you have to continue to take a temperature of where you are in the day. If you're tired or you're drunk, that's a really bad one. Or if you're hungry or if something really bad went on in your day, it's okay to say, I'm really having a rough time because of this, this, and this. Can we pick this up later? So a good fight, you can still go to bed angry. The, The never go to bed angry saying, we don't believe in that. You need to be in a good mental place when you're having this discussion with someone. By the way, that was really tough for me because I hate it when people are mad at me and I all I want to do is satisfy people and apologize immediately. And what I've learned is I've, I've got to finish the fight and I've got to finish it in a stable environment.
0: It seems that with couples, when there's something, a disagreement to discuss, what turns a disagreement into a fight Is anger that it's the anger that gets in the way of having a reasonable discussion about
2: it. We've we've had that before, and it's almost always because something else is ticking us off that has nothing to do with what we're talking about. So I think a couple of things that we do we we do that thirty thousand foot view, and we take a we take a uh, we hover over ourselves, and we say okay you're angry because you haven't eaten, you're angry because you haven't slept, or you're angry at me. You're very, very angry at me because of something that's been building up over a long period of time. We can't have a good conversation about this when you're so angry, all you can do is shout. So you've got to kind of take some time. And the answer is, how long does it take? The answer is, as long as it takes for you not to be feeling that way. And that's at least how how we try to do it. And by the way, it's sometimes taken a day or two for that to subside. But our belief, Kim and I's belief, is that if you try to have a fight when you're already angry, you're not going to get anywhere.
0: It seems a lot of times, and you hear people talk about this sometimes, that that when you fight, the thing you're fighting about isn't what you're really fighting about. It's really something else. And this is either the the straw that broke the camel's back, or it's just an opportunity to finally you know, let out some steam. But... What you're fighting about is really there's something else behind it.
2: I had to put my parents in a skilled nursing home a couple of years ago, which anyone who has done that knows that it's pretty brutal. We actually had to move him into an independent living facility, then into a skilled nursing home, then sell all of their personal possessions or find a place for them um, where they could be safe. And during all of that, we were getting in fights about everything and we n- neither of neither of us were talking about the grief that the grief that I was going through and the stress that Kim was going through because even though these were people who meant a lot to her, these were not her parents and she didn't really know the best way to deal with it or to intervene. So I guess I guess my answer is a lot of times when you can't stop fighting, it's because there's something under the surface that you haven't brought up. When we brought that up it made everything. a a thousand percent better. I mean, it still sucked um, what was happening with my parents, but at least we were able to communicate with each other a little bit better.
0: Yeah. It seems that sometimes it's hard to figure that stuff out. Like, what is the thing? How do you figure out what that big stressor is? Because even though it's it's obvious in hindsight, and when you say it, I imagine in the moment, it was kind of hard. You knew you were upset and stressed out, but it was maybe hard to pinpoint exactly what was causing it.
2: Yeah. Do you remember when you were a kid and you would ask why over and over again, and your parents would ultimately get to something very elemental? Like It's so funny. Whenever I asked my my dad something why over and over again, it either would go back to the Big Bang Theory or God, because it, like he had to keep going back to the most basic thing. Uh, you can actually do that in a fight. You can ask why over and over again until you get to the heart of the matter
0: you had said that you know it's not so much or it's not just what you say but it's the body language the how you say it um the tone in your voice and i and i have this image of you and your wife arguing in this very calm well so here's what i feel and but do you like go at it
2: i mean that's that's such a good point sometimes even when we're using the right words like here's how i feel you, you can hear my voice right now if i say here's how I feel. I feel really upset that you're asking me to be the good guy all the time. Or if I say, here's how I feel. I feel really upset that you're asking me to be the good guy all the time. Like Those are two very different things, right? And also you couldn't see me, but my hands were like flying all over my face. And I, and I, I stood up and I like bowed my chest out when I said the second one. There are all these other right? There's all, all these other things that are happening when you're shouting at someone. So that's that's just a whole other element that you have to worry about on top of the things that you're actually saying.
0: Yeah. Well, but it also seems like if, if, if you want someone to know you're upset, it kind of makes sense to get loud and sound upset. And you're saying that that's probably not the best thing to do if you're trying to resolve a problem, but it it seems like it's human nature that, you know, that, that the actions have to match what you're saying. If you're upset, you sound upset.
2: Yeah. And we, we don't get an A plus on this, Michael. We don't, we really don't. We still raise our voices with each other. Um, there's gonna, I mean, there's passion, right? Everyone's got passion, but every time we do the fight tends to not go in the direction you want it to. It just, it, because I don't know if you've ever done this before, but if you raise your voice, she's going to match her tone, but a little bit higher. And so the only thing you can do is go even higher and, as soon as the first person raises their voice, it just sort of devolves into everyone raising their voice. And again, we do it sometimes. we still do it. it. I'm just telling you when when you do it, it doesn't you don't progress the way that you would probably want to.
0: You know those couples though that that they seem like they're always fighting like they're always yelling at each other and 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 they don't see it a whole lot worse for the wear. That's just their style of communicating. Uh, have you ever? seen that and and know what i'm talking about
2: yes i have seen it
0: and, and so what do you you know i mean does this not apply to them i mean they they, they just let it all out and scream and yell and, and 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 they seem fine
2: well they they probably have a good marriage right I mean, kim and i had a good marriage we felt like we went from a good marriage to a very good marriage to a great marriage because we tried all the stuff our counselor was telling us, I think the counselor would tell him the same thing. Like if you if you kept a, a calmer tone, you might progress through. Remember, an argument an argument is has a beginning, a middle, and an end. You might progress through it so that you wouldn't have that same fight again. Having said that, I mean, ev- again, yeah, everyone does their own thing. It's by the way, it's good that you're fighting some. I'd be more worried about someone who never fights than someone who fights all the time. To be honest with you, because the passion is there, but. I would say they might want to try having a, a conversation where they're not raising their voice and see if it if they get to progress that they hadn't gotten to before.
0: Isn't it interesting how so often, I mean, I can speak for myself and and I know other people have said the same thing that F- fights when they happen are like there's nothing more important than this fight we're having right now and and in a week you, you don't even remember what you were fighting about it just like it goes away it, it wasn't that important but at the time nothing was more important
2: i have no didactic advice for this only to tell you that when we started putting this book together we couldn't remember like 90 of the fights that we had <laughs> like you're absolutely right they just they go away Um, I think what doesn't go away is whatever the underlying feelings were that caused the fight. But sometimes the fight has nothing to do with what those underlying feelings are.
0: Well, it does seem when you're in a relationship for any length of time, just by the nature of interaction, there's going to be miscommunication. There's going to be misunderstandings. People are going to take things not necessarily the way you meant them. It's bound to happen.
2: We had one... Knockdown, down drag out fight where she wanted to she wanted me to write a, a musical and I've, I've written a lot of music online and i've enjoyed that and i've talked to people about wanting to write a musical and a musical is like twenty thousand times harder and she asked me that while we were like in the middle of doing a thousand other things in our life she's like i think we should do a musical and i could help you with the script, like that would be amazing. And my response to her was, do you think that's the best use of your time? And I was saying that because she she had a thousand other projects that she was doing and she got so mad. She got out of the car and walked away and I had no idea what had just happened. I was like, what did I just say? And after a very long de-escalation period, because she was pissed, I realized that she was mad at me because I wasn't taking her seriously as a professional, like entirely, like as a partner. And that's like a major problem if you work with someone. And it started with us talking about, a, about whether, like, whether or not she was too busy to help me with a musical. The underlying issue was much, much bigger. And I've definitely learned how to not only trust her, but believe in her and actually respect the fact that her job may not just be as important as mine. It's probably more important. But I don't know that I did before then.
0: Well, anybody who's been in a relationship knows that relationships aren't always easy. The fights are probably the hardest part of being in a relationship. So it's interesting to listen to somebody who's really, you know, taken a deep dive into why we fight and and how to get better at it. My guest has been Penn Holderness. He is author of the book, Everybody Fights, So Why Not Get Better At It? And there's a link to his book in the show notes. Thanks, Penn, for being here.
2: Thank you, Michael. I appreciate it.
0: We all know about the growling stomach. It's the reason you don't want to go to church without eating something first, because it seems to happen at exactly the wrong time. What's going on when your stomach growls? Well, first of all, it's not your stomach. It's your intestines, mostly. As air passes through, the intestines contract and expand, and that's what makes the noise you hear. When you have food moving through your system, it muffles that sound, which is why people tend to associate a growling stomach with being hungry. But actually, you're always making that sound, you just don't hear it very well after you've eaten. Occasional stomach growling is completely normal. It happens to everyone. It just seems to be louder at church. And that is something you should know. If you're one of those people who listens to this podcast but has yet to share it with someone else, well, why is that? Please, share this podcast, give them the link, and let them hear it as well. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know